Attention architects and creative minds, get ready to supercharge your brand with Build Your Brand, the podcast that's unlocking the secrets of branding success for creatives. Hey there, it's Mark Arlapage, founder of Entree Architect, and I'm inviting you to join my friend, architect marketing expert, Jeff Eccles at Build Your Brand Podcast, where he explores the captivating stories of the world's top brands and transforms their lessons into powerful moves for small firm architects and creatives like you. In season one, Jeff shares the thrilling tale of Southwest Airlines, where he dissects their journey to the summit and distills it into strategies tailor-made for you. It's important to keep in mind that companies like Southwest compete in the real world, just like you, and face real-world challenges, just like you. You might be surprised at how similar those challenges are to the struggles that you grapple with on a day-to-day basis. Don't miss out on your blueprint for success. Subscribe, tune in, and let's build your brand together. You may have noticed that the very best brands in the world are also known for having somewhat unique corporate cultures. That's often the glue that holds everything together when they encounter those rough spots. We don't do it because it inconveniences the passengers to whom we are primarily dedicated, the short haul uh, frequent flyer. Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Build Your Brand today. Remember, no matter the size, the journey's the same. Your brand's journey to the top starts here. I still call on people, everyone, frankly, to envision new possibilities, not just for the AI, but for the profession and for, you know, just the way that we conduct ourselves and the way that we engage with our communities, with our clients. I, I think, you know, it's time to, to look at things from a slightly different perspective. So I'm happy to, to bring, you know, my voice to the table, which represents, uh, you know, some, some groups that have not long had a lot of representation. Welcome to Context and Clarity the place where authors, experts, and thought leaders come to have engaged conversations with entrepreneurial architects just like you. I'm Jeff Eccles, and every Thursday afternoon on Context and Clarity Live, Catherine McPhail and I, and our live audiences that are joining us from all across the internet, we have a conversation with a special guest to search for clarity around the things that matter most to you, the architect, no matter what your context is. In this episode, we talk with Kimberly Dowdell, the 100th president of the American Institute of Architects, but only the seventh woman and the first black woman to hold that position. Our guest today is an architect, a leader, and a visionary. She's a firm principal, a past president of the National Organization of Minority Architects, and will be the 100th president of the American Institute of Architects. As the 100th, she'll be only the seventh woman to be president, the first black woman to be president, and the first from the millennial generation to be president. She asks us to envision new possibilities and focuses on supporting architects in practice, creating a sense of belonging, ensuring access to the architectural profession and education, addressing climate concerns and designing for the future, considering rapid technological advances. Kimberly Dowdell, welcome to Context and Clarity Live. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. It's good to be here. 
especially for your 100th. Congratulations to you. Thank you. Thank you for that. And congratulations to you on being the 100th and what we talked about before we get started, the 10-year anniversary of passing your last uh, section of the ARE today. So congratulations on that. Thank you. Yes, March 16th, 2013 is a very memorable day because had I not passed that day, I actually would have had to start all over because of the rolling clock. Oh, wow. Um, But... uh, Thankfully, NCARB actually changed that policy recently. Um, It hasn't hit all jurisdictions yet, but we're uh, actively working with our partners uh, throughout the industry to to make sure that that happens. So um, so it's a milestone that I'm exactly, you know, that I'm excited about, but also um, interested in helping to to make make possible for more people. Which section did you leave for last? The last section was building design and construction systems. Uh, That's a really timely... Uh, anniversary, I guess, because of that rolling clock issue, you know, I think that's a great illustration that if you, if you hadn't that that's, I, I don't know if everybody it's, it's been all over uh, social media and articles and everything about the in carb, um, what removing the rolling clock, I guess. I don't know if anybody uh, identified with that issue as closely as you do, or you did because of that situation. I mean, that's, to me, that's, that's kind of bonkers to think that had you not passed on, you know, 10 years sitting ago. here right yeah, now, exactly. is your 100th yeah, that's, that's really crazy. Guest. Wow. Yeah. It's pretty crazy. Yeah. But yeah, here we are. Well, I'm glad you here did. We are. Well, yeah, exactly. <laughs> <Me too>. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Congratulations on that. So, you know, in the introduction, I, I rattled off all, all of these things that, that kind of come together in you, the 100th, the, the seventh woman, the first black woman, the first millennial, all of those things. Obviously that, well, maybe I shouldn't say obviously, but I think that that probably gives you a pretty unique perspective coming into the position of the president of the American Institute of Architects. What's on your mind as you head towards what inauguration would be in December of this year, right? December 15th. December 15th. So what goes through your mind? You know, with, with that particular perspective, as you get ready to take over from from Emily, who Emily Grandstaff Rice, we had uh, her as our guest back in December. I think it was right after, um, I think the week after the inauguration for for her tenure. What goes through your mind as you're thinking about all of those mantles that you're carrying, but also your vision for being this next and one hundredth president? Yeah. Um, you know, I think about the fact that I didn't get here alone and, you know, I, I have so many, um, you know, people to to thank for their support, um, you know, mentorship, sponsorship, guidance, all kinds of things, you know, Emily included in that for sure. But, you know, the other presidents of the AIA, um, you know, from all different, different varieties of types of people, um, the former presidents of NOMA, um, you know, certainly my firm has been super supportive. So that's the first thing that's just a, a sincere um sincere gratitude for, uh, for all of that. Um, but also thinking about, um, you know, the folks who've not yet decided to become an architect, uh, the young people who are on the fence, or maybe they don't know about it yet. And hopefully, you know, as a profession, we'll do more to get the word out. But those who are on the fence, how do we make sure that we get them to choose architecture and stay in architecture? So talent, attraction, and retention is something that, um, that I think a lot about. Um, and I think about ways that we can, you know, really promote the work that we do and the value that we create so that we can um, really get the the greatest talent that's out there. Because I like to say architects can see the future and help our clients create a better one. 
but it is a somewhat unique skill set to be able to, you know, to some extent, see the future and then articulate it and draw. I mean, like that's fairly rare. Like most people can't do what we do. Um, and we have to acknowledge that and it needs to be valued more. And, but I also, I think making sure that young people see this as an, as an option um, as early as possible and then cultivating that talent to really um, help our, our profession become even greater. So those are, those are things kind of look, thinking about the past and the folks who have gotten me to this point, but then also what can I do, um, you know, among others to, to help those who are coming behind us. Yeah, I love that. And, and as I mentioned in the introduction, one of the things that you focused on is the sort of accessibility of, of education and the profession. And, and that's one of the things that I've, I've been teaching uh, for a handful of years now. And one thing that's really touched me is, you know, we, we talk a lot about path, path to licensure. You know, that that's a term that's that's all over the profession. And I, I you know, I, I prefer a different term. I think path to the profession is something that I prefer, not not trying to diminish licensure for any reason uh, or, or at all. But I see so many people that that accessibility issue is real, you know, whether it it's the cost of school, the length of school, the, you know, all the things that go into it. So, you know, I, I assume that your passion for that is probably based on your experience in some way, but but as we as we think about that accessibility, what do you think is is really important for us to address, and you know maybe in the next five years or something like that? Yeah, well, as I alluded to just um, just before, making sure young people know what architecture and you know know what architects do, know what architecture is about as early as possible. So I'm talking like K through 12 education, um, empowering you know our architecture centers around the country and, and even globally to find ways to get content into kids' hands. So uh, actually yesterday um, I visited the IIDA's uh, headquarters here in Chicago and they had a book signing for a kid's book uh, called Design Your World. And um, you know, I talked to, uh, to, to someone there uh, who, who said, yeah, you know, here at IADA, we, um, you know, we have a, a small but mighty staff and there's no way for us to get to all the schools. Um, and so we decided to create this book to, you know, put that in, in kids' hands and, you know, start to plant those seeds about design in general. And I think, you know, thinking about architecture specifically, um, I know NOMA actually, NOMA's Nashville chapter had a coloring book. Uh, which was a brilliant idea because it, you know, got people engaged and they were coloring, you know, uh, pictures of of buildings um, in Nashville by uh, NOMA members. So I think, again, that early, early information is as a form of access, but then, you know, getting people to the right gu guidance counselors. In fact, there was conversation about informing guidance counselors about architecture so that they don't, um, you know, provide any misinformation. Um, and then uh, helping people navigate the different types of programs, you know, whether you do a, a four plus two program or a five program or a four plus three program, if you want to study something as an undergrad that is not directly uh, related. And so there's so many different pathways. I can understand how someone could get confused and just, um, you know, kind of get, get uh, sidetracked, or they might look at compensation, um, you know, starting out compared to some other professions and, and make a decision based on that, which I think is unfortunate, but that also means that as a profession, we have to think about how we can best articulate our value and sort of raise those numbers over time. So I think a, a great goal within five years is to have a higher starting salary, which means that everyone has to be elevated to the point where, um, you know, we're really getting um, the, the compensation that 
that supports the value that we create. Because again, we can see the future and not many other people can do that. Um, and so, yes, yeah, so once someone chooses the profession, getting them into whichever academic program makes the most sense, making sure that they have, you know, the right, um, you know, the resources to afford um, the, the technology and the books and the supplies, materials, et cetera. Uh, and then connecting them with the right internship opportunities and getting them connected with mentors. Uh, that's one of the reasons why, for me, NOMA was so important um, as a student as well as AIA. And I, I wasn't directly involved with AIS as a student, but I think that's also a wonderful resource for um, for people who are in school. And, you know, really investing time and, and energy into these organizations because they really do provide a strong and important support system to get um, into the profession and, and navigate which career opportunities make the most sense. And, I, you know, I like the idea of um, not necessarily calling it just the path to licensure, because um, at the AI, we've been having conversations around uh, a notion we're, we're, we're calling beyond buildings, because, um, you know, as architects, we're often sort of assumed to, to be designing buildings, but we're actually designing solutions that are beyond buildings. And, um, you know, some of, some of those things, uh, you know, are certainly done by licensed architects, but other things are are done by those who have this you know, really intense, uh, unique training. And I think we have to value that as well. Yeah, I, I think that's a really great point when we're, you know, you're talking about raising starting salaries, which means that fees will have to go up and things like that. And it's, it's ultimately going to come back to, and maybe it even wraps back to the grade school kids is what is the value of an architect? What, what is an architect? You know, what is, what does an architect actually do? So I love that idea of, of beyond buildings because there's, there's so much more impact that's that's possible uh, or not even that's possible that just happens every single day you know it's gonna, is what you were saying anyway but um uh, I, I like that i like that approach a lot and i know that some of the things that you care about are you know future of cities and and um uh, really kind of envisioning uh, new well envisioning new possibilities was was uh, a big part of your campaign wasn't it it was that was what i used as my hashtag for most of my social media posts last year during the campaign process. And, you know, I, I still, um, you know, call on people, uh, everyone, frankly, to envision new possibilities, not just for the AI, but for the profession um, and for, uh, you know, just the way that we, um, you know, conduct ourselves and the way that we um, engage with our communities, with our clients. I, I think, you know, it's time to, to look at things from a slightly different perspective. So I'm happy to, to bring, you know, my voice to the table, which, um, you know, which represents, uh, you know, some some groups that have uh, not long had a lot of representation. You're carrying the mantle as the first millennial, first from the millennial generation to take this leadership role. What, as you think about that, how do you think leadership changes? Or what do you think about different leadership approaches as we move forward? Because we we've talked about this this week. There's all. There's always. There always has been this natural shift, generational shift through leadership, right? As people get older and younger people come up, et cetera. I think we're in the first time in history with four generations in the workplace, and now you're you're taking this mantle. Does that signal? And 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 I I don't know. This this is asking for a really broad brush answer, I guess. But but is is there a difference? in the way that you're going to think about leadership and maybe people that um, in your generation are going to think about leadership differently, things that we'll care about or talk about or act differently than, um, than has been done in the past. 
Sure. Well, first, I'd like to say I like all the generations. Everyone's wonderful. Everyone. Yeah, we're not. We're not. I'm not trying to pit generations against generations. <laughs> yeah. um, and I try not to make broad, sweeping generalizations about. Um, any group of people and certainly not generations. But um, I will say, I, I believe that the millennial or also known as Gen Y uh, generation, I mean, like how generations work, we're a bridge between Gen X, who are those who are a bit older than us, and Gen Z, uh, those who are actually just now entering the workplace. And so I think that, you know, helping our, our Gen Z counterparts kind of get adjusted to, um, you know, to sort of office culture and, and things of that nature, especially coming out of pandemic, which, you know, was was disruptive for all of us, frankly, but I think for them coming in um, and just trying to understand how all this works. And I think that's a big part of our role in, in the uh, Gen Y millennial group. And then also helping Gen Xers and, and boomers understand how to, to not least I think they're still trying to figure out how to work with us. Um, I think they also think that we're still in our 20s, but we're actually uh, 40 plus at this point. But that's neither here nor there. Nor there. Um, but, but I think it's about um, having conversations that, that, that bridge those gaps and, and help to create more, uh, more understanding. Um, I think there's also, again, generally speaking, um, more of an emphasis on sustainable design, sustainability, resilience. This isn't like the greatest reason, but I think it's because of Captain Planet. Um, it's a really great cartoon. I personally watched it and was just like, you know, it's really important that we recycle, you know, like from like from being a little kid, like that was the thing. And, you know, there are other influences. Certainly that's one that comes to mind uh, first, but there are other influences that I think that we saw coming up in the 80s and 90s that sort of made it really important that we take care of the environment, we take care of one another, um, we give back, we, um, you know, we try to be philanthropic, but um, unfortunately, student loans have um, impacted millennials more than uh, actually Gen Z and Gen X. I guess there's some policy situation that made that the case. So, but generally speaking, I think it's about um, people, planet, and profit, uh, whereas I think perhaps some of the earlier generations are a little bit more focused on profit, which makes sense. They, you know, they came came up um you know, were with parents or grandparents that, you know, navigated the depression and, and you know, they're just different policy things that were in place and different things happening in the world, which informs our, our worldview. So, so I'll, I'll leave it there. But I, I think that broad, broadly speaking, millennials are still trying to figure this thing out, but doing our best to, um, you know, navigate our, uh, our peers on. One of the things that I did not mention, I mentioned in the introduction that you are principal at a firm, but I didn't even mention the firm. It's HOK. Uh, you're in the Chicago office at HOK. Our audience is primarily small firm architects. And so one question that naturally comes up all the time, when, when whether it's uh, Emily or we had Lakeisha Woods on a few weeks ago, uh, it's the question that's always going to come up is what about small firms in the future, not only of, of AIA, you know, that's certainly in this context, but what about small firms in the future of the profession? Um, as we, you know, we, if we go over to the small firm exchange website, I'll call it, uh, you get all the statistics that are there about the, you know, the percentage of, of employees, the percentage of firms, percentage of architects that are small firm architects. Do you see that do you see small firms continuing to trend upwards and if so what's you know what's that mean for the future does it uh what's what's the impact of that on the future of the profession yeah i mean i think that small firms will continue to flourish and will 
um, you know, will grow and obviously become medium-sized firm and perhaps in the future a, a larger-sized firm. But some some um, firm owners uh, they intentionally want to stay small and, and sort of work in in a way that um, you know that just kind of keeps them within you know maybe the you know, 12 plus, uh, 12 plus or minus people range, or even sole practitioners and, and everywhere in between. And I think that there's, there's room for all, for all types, because there are all types of buildings, there are all types of projects, um, you know, whether they be, you know, built projects, and I talked about beyond buildings, but there are also some problem solving, uh, you know, uh, efforts that or opportunities out there, I think, specifically, thinking about, um, you know, uh, working in, in uh, public public sector, you know, sometimes city governments will, or state governments or or what have you will put out um, RFPs, RFQs for community engagement, or they'll you know have like they'll pose a problem that you know architects or landscape architects or planners might be able to help with. And so I think having you know a, a wide variety of different opportunities to to leverage design services will you know, will be applied at, at different scales. And so I think small firms will always have a place in the ecosystem. Um, you know, as you mentioned, HOK is where I work. In fact, I started HOK in 2008. Uh, so I've been there for a long time, although I did take an eight-year uh, period of time to do grad school and some other um, other opportunities, including teaching and, and having a small practice of my own. So I actually have some some experience and I know how difficult it is, you know, to to make sure that you are Keeping up with cash flow, paying insurance—I didn't, I didn't have any idea how expensive insurance was, by the way, and you know, like those kinds of things. But uh, you know, I, I returned to HOK in 2019 as NOMA president, and um, shortly thereafter, uh, myself and a few others within the firm, we launched a, a, an initiative called HOK Tapestry, and uh, you can learn more about it at hoktapestry.com. But essentially, it's designed for us to work with smaller firms. Um, you know, basically people who might uh, consult with us on a, on a project. Um, and so it's a way for us to, one, get to know who's out in the, in the community. Um, and these are firms of all types, but, um, you know, we do offer the opportunity for firms to tag, you know, if they have MBE status, WBE status, BBE status, et cetera. So that, so that way we can do kind of a smart search to see who's out there, who, um, you know, has these certain certifications um, and even if they don't have a certification, they're you know they're in the program, and we're able to uh, to work with them on special programming that um, you know that that perhaps a large firm like HOK that's been around since 1955 can lend some expertise, or uh, in some cases some office space, or um, you know resources of, of different types. So really excited about Tapestry and um, being able to spend some time in my new role, which was just announced this week as uh, HOK's Director of Strategic Relationships. So. But yeah, working closely with small firms is a, is a part of that. But even if a firm does not work with HOK or another large firm, I think there's um, there's really an important place for small firms in the ecosystem of design uh, design services. Congratulations on the uh, on the new role as well. Thank you. HOKTapestry.com. Check that out. Uh, you mentioned resilience and and sustainability a few minutes ago, and I mean we're. I mentioned when when Scott Thrift said hi from San Francisco, how crazy it's been out there in San Francisco. I mean we've got some actually today. There's some major storms brewing up in the uh, um, in kind of the the deep south right now. Um, we're in the midst of some really crazy climate action in, in the last even just in the last several weeks. When you think about the future and you think about addressing climate concerns, 
what what do you think about and what can we as a community of architects do what's the best thing that we can do in order to to start addressing those uh those types of issues yeah well one thing that comes to mind is the the 2030 challenge to to really get all of our you know um design colleagues to to figure out how to um you know to comply with with the with the, the um dynamics of the challenge um but also it reminds me and i only learned about this recently so i had to write it down to make sure i got it right so there's an architect by the name of joyce owens yep. and i don't know if you okay you do yeah. but well it's, it's news to me but i'm happy to share um so five of the homes that she designed in sanibel island uh they withstood hurricane ian whereas all the other homes around um were demolished and i think that's you know such an important testament to uh you know just the the design skill that she has um, to to make sure that that those homes were were not demolished or you know were not destroyed in in that storm and so making sure that our colleagues are equipped with the with the skills and and knowledge and resources that they need to to design really resilient structures um, and so you know one of the things that the 2030 challenge um, that I mentioned you know that's about long term um, action that that helps with with prevention. Um, but then also what what um, what what Joyce has been able to accomplish uh, that's sort of dealing with with the situation that we are currently in. And so I think it's a um, it's a matter of of kind of dealing with it in, in both ways. Yeah. Yeah. For anybody that's not familiar with Joyce Owens, the reason that I know about her is because we this is going to be past tense. We used to vacation in that area um, and where we went is annihilated at this point. Right. And so. I've known about Joyce and and known her work for a while, seeing it down there, seeing it under construction. And if if you want an illustration of what Kimberly is talking about, just go to Instagram. Um, I think it says I think her Instagram handle is it may be JOA. So it's Joyce Owens Architect, I think. Um, but JOA, find her Instagram handle and and see these photographs. And if you've not seen any of the, the devastation of, of Sanibel and Captiva and Fort Myer, this area we're talking about in Florida, um, see the photographs of her projects and it's, it's stark. I mean, it is, it is incredible. You've got, you know, her project and the one, first one that comes to my mind is this beautiful modern white home that's sitting there, presumably if you didn't know any better in the middle of a war zone, everything else is, is just literally destroyed around it, but yet there sits, there sits her project. And it's, I, I think it's an incredible testament to her design, the quality of design and construction and all those things. Um, it's really sad. It's really sad to, to, to view it, but it is, it is a great example of the quality or, or the um, value of an architect in, in that type of, uh, that type of environment, that type of project. So it's funny that you brought that up because I was just talking about her in a mastermind group about an hour and a half ago. So, oh, wow. yeah. 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 So, and, and I, I agree. The situation itself is, is terrible. You know, what happened yeah, yeah. to so many people. Yeah. Um, but for me, there's a sense of pride that, um, you know, there's a woman architect mm -hmm. um, who, and it's women's, you know, women's month. So, um, yeah, so absolutely. That, that I'd highlight that. Um, but yeah. just, you know, really proud of the fact that her work, uh, you know, in conjunction with the, uh, you know, the construction partners that, that, sure. um, yep. that were involved, you know, that it was able to sustain that kind of, um, uh, situation. So, yeah, yeah. It, yeah. um, yeah, like I said, go, go seek out some photographs of that because it's, if you ever want to point to what an architect can do, you know, it's sitting there in the middle of the, in the desolation. So I, I, I think it's on us 
I, I was thinking earlier, sorry to, to kind of backtrack a minute, but I was thinking earlier about those, those photographs from Joyce and, and thinking about that stark difference. And there's a part of me that, that looks at that, you know, with some, with some heartstrings because that's where we used to go. But, but that it, it's such an illustration. And I think we need to do more of this to demonstrate, right? It, it's the, it's the, the show, not tell, right? It's, it's the demonstrate, right. not, not tell. Uh, and of course we don't want to wish that on, on any situation, but um, I think we need to do a better job of, of highlighting the reality of what we're talking about here and the, in the value. And one other resource I would point to is the uh, AI framework for design excellence. Um, and so that's you know, a resource that people can take a look at that, that gets into a lot of the, the different types of design excellence, which, which includes resilience. And you can also go back and, uh, Catherine, I think this is maybe three months ago now, but we had Melissa Wackerly from AIA on All right. talking about sustainability at AIA. So you can uh, go uh, watch that episode with Melissa. She had a lot of great resources to share as well. She's a wealth of knowledge, so glad she, to, to she is, get her really. to share. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's just every, everything rattles off. It's, it's impressive. Uh, good resources there. Uh, another thing that I know you focused on is um, the rapid, uh, rapid change in technology, which I mean, I don't know if anybody's paying attention, but chat G or GPT-4 just was released uh, yeah. in the last couple of It's hard to keep days. up with all this. Yeah. It is. I mean, it's, it is. it's all happening so fast. Wow. That is fast. And and by the way, Google has uh, incorporated AI now in your Gmail. Oh, I heard about that. Yeah, so. Of course they have. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 And talk about envision new possibilities. I mean, with technology, that's, it's exciting, but it's also a little scary in the sense sure. that um, if architects don't sort of get ahead of this stuff, we could um, potentially lose some market share. And so I think talking about these issues now and making sure that uh, others don't sort of um, eat our lunch is is an important important thing. But I think overall the potential is there. We just have to make sure we harness it appropriately. Yeah, that'll make our lives easier. I think. Yeah, to me, as long as we look at these things as tools, right? Because that's what they are. As long as we look at these things as tools and learn to use the tools, you know, that'll that'll be to the distinct advantage. But it's you know, for all everybody out there that's designing uh, in wood construction you know, you're, you're not going to tell the carpenter that they can only swing a hammer, right? They have pneumatic nailers and other, other more advanced, I guess you could say it that way, more advanced tools, right? That they've adapted to. And, um, that's a very basic example, obviously, but, but what, what other types of, I mean, AI is, it's, you know, that's the, on the tip of everybody's tongue right now, but what else do you see in terms of advancing technologies that you're thinking about? I think also the metaverse is something to be mindful of and how that works and how architects can get engaged. And, um, and the other thing, um, which isn't directly related, but there it's sort of tangential. There are many students who are studying architecture and taking classes, um, you know, in the engineering building that, um, you know, that are related to information sciences, et cetera. And some of them are getting very comfortable over there. Um, and getting poached by companies that are not architecture firms. And so we're losing some of our talent uh, to, to those groups. And so I think, you know, it's, it's not wrong of an architecture student to expand their horizons. I've certainly spent some time outside of traditional architecture. Um, but I think that, you know, as a profession, we have to probably provide some opportunities for more 
immersion in technology or emerging technologies in particular to, to kind of keep the interest of some of our young people who um, are curious about what's what's happening, you know, over in in um, in Silicon Valley. So, so that comes to mind. Yeah, that, that was one of the things I, I taught an undergrad section of pro practice for the first time last semester. W- one of the things that really struck me, I, I asked, you know, I wanted to get to the heart of what these students were thinking about in terms of their future. You know, what do, what do they think about in terms of the profession? What do they think about in terms of their career, their life? You know, all of these things, you've touched on a lot of them, right? The, the cost, cost of education, debt, you know, all of those things, salaries, future workplace, things like that. And w- one day we were talking about what they were really interested in, you know, sort of types of jobs that they were interested in within or outside of the profession, you know, left that, that door open for them. And a majority of the students, and this is a small sample, right? It's 27 students or something like that. So it's a pretty small sample, but, but the majority of them said that they were interested in exploring something besides the traditional architecture practice. And so you had people talking about renderings and, and different, you know, visualization sort of technologies, uh, building envelope designers. And, you know, I was impressed by some, you know, these are fourth year students like, okay, you've been exposed to some, yeah. some things that I didn't know about in my you know fourth year. Um, yeah. But, but that really struck me that a lot of these students said, yeah, I'm not, I'm not sold on the idea of traditional architecture practice with at least the desire to explore other things that are out there. Yeah, I certainly encourage young people. Uh, I mean, I did this myself. I've had um, many different jobs over the course of my career and, you know, sampling different things to see what yeah. what makes the most sense, what makes uh, mm-hmm. what makes you happy, like what's most fulfilling. Yeah. And so certainly trying those things out. But I would encourage folks to give traditional practice a try mm-hmm. just to at least know what know what it is and know what it's about. And, you know, the experience will certainly vary from firm to firm and, right. and you know, different firm cultures, um, you know, might might impact one's decision to stay or, or, or move along. But but definitely just having that information about what's what's out there is, is going to help, you know, help someone figure out what where they probably would be most successful long term. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's an excellent point. You, you've always got to bring that up with students, whether it's undergrad or grad, because at, at that point in their life, they have such a small um, yeah. small window of exposure and and you know I don't know what I don't know and they certainly don't know what they don't know so find finding a place that feels like home I think and and feels you know accepting to you that that's one thing that that a lot of these students were were uh, concerned about was hey they, they've heard stories right they they right. saw the the Cyarc panel debacle things like that and they they hear that and they're worried about that in terms of of the workplace you know am i going to be thought of like that or treated like that or and some of it comes down to the right fit and some of it comes down to um us as professionals behaving behaving badly or not i th- in, in my opinion but i think there are legitimate uh concerns in that they don't they don't know what they're headed into how do we give the future generation of architects? How do we give them the feeling or reassure them that there is going to be a place here where you do belong, where, you know, you, you can build a career, that you can also have a family, that, um, you know, all of these things that that I think many of us have aspired to when we were young, hopefully achieved as we've gotten older. But but is there a key to, to, to 
facilitating those dreams or is it is it just some natural thing that has to happen? I don't know. Well, sort of how I kicked off uh, my remarks uh, earlier, it's, it's for me, the key has been mentorship. And, you know, I tell everyone who, you know, I have the opportunity to to chat with about my career. Um, you know, I wouldn't be here without right. uh, the great mentors that I've had, people who have, you know, just told me that you should apply for this job or, you know, there's an opening here, you should strongly consider it. Um, you know, those are the kinds of things that, you know, based on their understanding of you and what you've articulated uh, that you're interested in. Also, it's important to be clear about what you want or things that you, um, you know, have an interest in, in seeing out and then uh, making sure that your network um, is aware of that so that when those things do come around, um, others will will think to, to tap you for those. But, I, you know, I certainly credit my mentors from from NOMA, from AIA, from, from HOK and, and other places, you know, for helping to kind of guide me through all the the various things that I've I've done throughout my career, um, and so I think asking questions and um, and also being a mentor too, because um, there's a lot of good information from those who are coming coming behind you. So I think I I, I like to call it 360 mentorship. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, I like that. We've talked about mentorship some on context and clarity, and that that idea has come up. Right? It's it's not just a it's not just an older person mentoring a younger person. Um, there, there's lots of, whether, whether you call it two way or 360, there's lots of opportunity in, uh, in all directions. I think that's a, that's a really good point. Are you familiar with the Dan Sullivan question? Have you ever heard that? I have not. We're getting into the marketing weeds here or sales weeds at this point, but Dan Sullivan is this, um, I'm going to call him sort of this marketing guru guy. And there's actually a book now called the Dan Sullivan question, but the question goes something like, imagine yourself three years from today. I'll paraphrase it, but imagine yourself three years from today and you look around and go, this is great. This has been a success. I'm happy with where I am. And then looking back from three years from today, back to today, what will have had to have happened over the course of those three years in order to make that true? So let's let's modify that a little bit for your case. At the end of 2024, your time is the 100th president of AIA will be coming to a close. So imagine yourself in December, mid-December of 2024, looking back, what will have had to have happened over the course of your year as president of AIA for you to say, this, this is, this is what I dreamed it would be, or this is, this has been very successful. I'm, I'm so glad that, that, uh, this happened in this way. Yeah, that's, that's a good question. I've, Definitely been spending some time thinking about things along this line, so not completely off guard here. You know, I I really want uh, the profession of architecture to be elevated significantly in the in the sort of public eye. Like, I want people to know what architects do. You know, I actually we uh, we went to Capitol Hill uh, as AI for AI Leadership Summit last month, and uh, we got to meet with uh, some lawmakers and and their staffers. And one of the questions that I asked, I think, in every uh, group that I um, got to meet with, "What's your favorite building?" And most regular people, as in non-architects, they don't know. Um, they don't know what their favorite building is, nor would they know the architect. And so, I'd love it if um, there is heightened awareness of of um, buildings in general, like the names of buildings. Um, certainly, it'd be great to know the architects of those buildings. And so I'd love it if, um, you know, as you're flipping through magazines, you start to see those things noted because, you know, they're pretty good at um, putting the photographer's name. And I'm like, 
what building is this? Who's the architect? Like, I'd like for us to, you know, get a little bit more credit for the incredible amount of work that goes into creating these buildings. Um, so just generally um, raising the profile of the architect. And so the, um, the, the work that will need to happen between now and then is uh, really getting out there, telling our stories, you know, going on um, social media and, you know, the more traditional media channels and just um, letting the public know what we do, the value that we create. Um, and, you know, certainly it would be too early to, to um, see this come to fruition by the end of 2024. But, you know, I'd love to see those starting salaries become more competitive with other um, with other choices that young people have, so that more people will choose architecture, and it's a more complicated uh, answer than than I would have time, or actually right now the full understanding to um, to address. But there are a lot of dynamics at play in you know how uh, you know how we value our services, and um, and I think um, and also just generally the value that other people see, at, you know when when they think of an architect, and so. Um, so I think we have to work on that and, and kind of get our messaging straight and and um, put it out there in a clear way so that our clients are like, oh, absolutely. This invoice makes sense. Like, do you want more? Let <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, me give you more. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And also just one last thing on that topic, um, improving the procurement process for design services. Mm. Um, you know, the work that I have been doing up until my new role uh, started this week is I've I've been marketing principal in the Chicago studio of HOK and myself and my colleagues from around the firm and also I know other firms deal with this too receiving RFPs RFQs and and other types of requests with very short turnaround times mm -hmm. we had something that was due on December 27th which is you know problematic for so many reasons even things due on Monday it's like you know cuz then you know people are going to be working over the weekend and just kind of um making sure that there are clear guidelines that um, that treat us with a level of respect as professionals. Um, I think sometimes these RFPs and RFQs read like they're, you know, they're purchasing paper clips and it's like, no, we are professionals and we, you know, it takes time to put these, uh, these packages together. So um, really, I think improving the procurement service um, or the, the procurement professional services process would be something that I would like to, to say we accomplished over, over that that year yeah. by president i'm with you we could we backstage we could talk for a couple of hours about that <laughs> yeah it's something everyone can relate to for yeah. sure yeah yeah absolutely those those are those are a couple of really or a few really great goals there i like i like all of those and and i think everybody in this community anybody that's watching this either now or in the future could get on board with all of those so i know we're close to the top of the hour here again a, a uh, an audience of of small firm, primarily small firm architects from across the country. I don't know if I've seen any international friends pop in here uh, today or not, but but as you think about small firm architects or, or any architects, but you know this is this is our community. What's one thing that you would love it if every small firm architect in this community and beyond would start doing um, would start doing today? Uh, I would encourage everyone to know your value and demand it. And if a client doesn't want to pay that, then maybe they're not the right client for you and kind of like stick to your guns as much as possible. I know that's easier said than done, but I think as a profession, we have to do that consistently, um, like across the board, all sizes, all scales, like, you know, you, you get what you ask for, generally speaking. And um, I think we have to, to be a little bit more 
um, generous with ourselves and understanding that our time, I mean, it's, it takes on average um, 12 years for someone to become an architect, or at least that was a stat that, that I memorized a little while ago. Maybe the number has adjusted a little bit. It takes a long time, basically, yeah. Yeah. Um, over a decade, roughly. And, you know, you work really hard to, to earn that. And all of your colleagues, you know, around you also did. And so I think it's important to make sure that, um, that you are, um, you know, earning, uh, you know, your, your, your fees reflect that so that, you know, you can actually continue to do that work and hire the best talent and keep the best talent. And so I think just being really confident in the services that you provide, that's really important. And the extent to which you need support or, or, you know, just generally want to connect with others to, to understand something that you don't know as much about, go to AIA, go to NOMA, go to, you know, other organizations like ULI, or depending on what, you know, what you're directly engaged in, get involved locally or nationally or, or internationally. But, you know, I think it's important to kind of build community around yourself, not just for your firm, but also with, with other firms, with other sole practitioners, with other large firms, like whatever the case might be, just building that network around you is really important. I think that's been one of the, um, the key things that's helped me um, you know, in addition to my mentors, which is kind of included in that group. Yeah, I, I think that's a good point. It it always, I love that idea of building the community around you. And I, I also think I'm, I'm going to maybe spin this in a different direction, perhaps, but, but I also think that, you know, n- none of us, none of us are on an island, none of us are insulated from any of this thing, we all bear some responsibility, you know, we can't look at you know, this organization or that organization and say, oh, they ought to be doing this because we have just, just you know, back to Joyce Owens and, and the way, and she's sort of been on, on a, a speaking trail a little bit over the past couple of months too, talking about the situation uh, down there on the Gulf coast of Florida in the houses and, and everything else. Um, she's taking that on, right? She's, she's carrying that. Does it have some benefit for her? Certainly it does. Does it have a wider benefit for architects, absolutely, it does, um, and and the ripple effect will will no doubt be great. And so, you know, I think everybody needs to think about their own ripple effect, and and not say, hey, you know, what's what's AIA doing, or what's Noma doing, or what's you know the rest of the alphabet soup doing for me. So, uh, so I, those are uh, those are some really great points, Kimberly. First of all, congratulations on Thank ten years. You. 10 Thank years. That, that's, that's an important one. Congratulations Absolutely. on being the 100th. That's, thank you so much. That's big. That's, that's huge. That's pretty yeah, big. Yeah. And yeah. thank you for being with us on our 100th. Uh, Congrats yeah, to thank you. you. Yeah. Thank you. We, we appreciate that, uh, that synergy there. And uh, so those of you that, that don't know this, you don't get the, you don't get to see the backside of planning and things like that. I tried to talk her out of it. <laughs> I, I tried to tell her, no, you don't need to, to reschedule to make this happen. But I, I appreciate it. I was it. determined. I was like, no, I'm going to make your 100th episode. No, I appreciate that. Thank you for um, inviting me. Yeah, absolutely. It's, uh, it's great to have you here. It really is. We, we appreciate the support. Well, what do you think? Did you hear something in this conversation that you can use, maybe in your practice or even in your life? If the topic of this conversation is of particular interest to you, every week in the Entree Architect Network, I host the Context and Clarity Classroom. It's our weekly opportunity to take what we've learned from our special guests and put those lessons into action in your life and in your work. 
find the Context and Clarity Classroom exclusively inside the Entree Architect Network at network.entrearchitect.com. And if you are so inspired by this conversation that you'd like to watch the entire Context and Clarity Live episode, head on over to YouTube. Find the Entree Architect YouTube channel. There's a playlist there that has all of the full Context and Clarity Live episodes. You can also have the Context and Clarity podcast delivered to you every week. Just give us a rating and subscribe wherever you're listening right now. Your likes and your ratings and your shares all help us help other entrepreneur architects like you. And together, they help us build the largest worldwide community of small firm architects. And if you love content like this, check out Gable Media. It's a multimedia network for people that care about the built environment. And it's the home of Context and Clarity. With Gable's growing family of podcasts and video channels, I know that you're going to find something there that interests you. You can learn more at gablemedia.com. That's G-A-B-L media.com. So thanks for listening. I hope this conversation has inspired you to think about how you can build your business into something that allows you to practice the way that you want to practice. I've mentioned it to my family, but in terms of telling people like, oh yeah, we're doing this, I'm looking for projects. You got anything? Yeah. I'm, I'm not there yet because it scares the out of me. Dreaming of launching your own architecture firm? Well, buckle up for a wild ride with Emerging, the podcast that shares what it's really like to start an architecture firm. Where do we begin? We don't even know what type of business to formalize as. Is it an LLC? Is it an LLP? Like how are taxes? I mean, the list is astronomical. Season one featured founders Jeffrey, Lexi, and Chris, owners of Level Studio Architecture, are your fearless guides on this unfiltered journey from napkin sketches to a thriving studio. One evening, stumbled into one last dive, we sat at the bar and pondered our postgraduate futures. Amidst the conversation, a napkin became the canvas for our aspirations, sketching plans and milestones, sealing our heartfelt commitment and shared dreams. In drawing down dreams on a napkin collectively, that <laughs> then, you know, in your head, you've rooted like, oh, I'm connected to these people, like long term. The process of starting an architecture practice brims with excitement and challenges, demanding meticulous planning, flawless execution, and unyielding resilience. I kind of hate the term because it's so overly used, but I think everybody knows imposter syndrome. And I think it's it's so real to this day. I, I, I don't know if it's with everybody, but with me, I'm always questioning like us, can we do this? Are we ready to do this? Are we prepared? Can we do it? Did we just decide a name? <laughs> we did it, guys. Oh my the one that God. came out of nowhere. Woo! It came out of nowhere. I liked it. I saw it. Ready to turn your aspirations into reality? Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Emerging and chart your own path to architectural success.